Would you rather find out Jesus was radically different than who you thought he was or continue in your comfortable ignorance? Now, at first glance, this may appear like a really easy question, but if we're honest, it's not. See, it's really comfortable for us to just accept the Jesus that we have in our minds, this sort of concept of who Jesus is, right? The views that he holds, the things that he would approve of or disapprove of, whether it be in our personal lives or in what's going on in our culture right now. But what if the real Jesus was radically different than the one that you have in your mind right now? Would you want to know? Because, see, what that would entail is a radical change on your part. And that's why I said it's not an easy question. Because we don't want to think about, number one, being wrong, but also, number two, having to change some of our beloved beliefs. And life can be like a maze sometimes, where when we get in it, we get so lost, we get turned upside down, we don't know left from right, north from south, where we've been, where we're trying to go, that the best thing to do is to go back to the start, get our bearings, form a new plan, and start again. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to do that with our idea of who Jesus is. And the only way that we can do that, the only way that we can really compare the real Jesus with the idea of who we think Jesus is, is to go back to the start. And I'm going to give you my sermon in one sort of thesis statement this morning, right off the bat, so you know exactly where I'm coming from, and we don't get lost in the mix. And here it is. The only Jesus we know comes clothed to us in the Apostles' Doctrine, not in whatever outfit we have picked out for him. So we're going to go back to the beginning this morning. Acts chapter 2 is the very first time the gospel message was ever preached to a group of people. And in the context here is that Jesus has died at the day of Passover. He's risen again, and he spent the next 50 days showing himself alive to the apostles and some other disciples and his women followers. And then he, he ascends back into heaven, and he tells his disciples to wait into go into Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. That as these apostles are gathered together, you have this great event that happens. A sound like a mighty rushing wind, these flames of tongues of fire shooting off of their heads, and this great crowd of Jews who are there for the feast gather around and they begin to ask, what is going on with this? And so we start in verse 14 where Peter begins a sermon to the crowd. And he's going to center that sermon on the identity of Jesus. And he says this in verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And he's telling them, listen, all this stuff that's happening here, it's not because we're drunk. It's what was actually talked about in the scriptures was going to happen. And so look at verse 17 as he turns to the prophet Joel from the Old Testament, and he tells the crowd, this is what is going on. He says this, It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit 
on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. When we think about the last days, we often think of uh, when Jesus is going to return, the end of the world, you know, the millennial kingdom, all these sort of other ideas that pop into our head. But for the Jews, when they read in the Old Testament about the last days, their idea, which was the correct idea, is the days when the Messiah would come. And so, according to the prophet Joel, he's saying, it shall be in the last days, in the days when the Messiah comes, that I'll pour forth my Spirit on all mankind. So what Peter does from the very get-go is he says, listen, what is happening right now is what was told us was going to happen. The Spirit is being poured forth on all mankind. It's the last days. And what he's getting the Jews to do is they're going, well, if it's the last days, that means the Messiah should be here. And he's going, exactly. And he's going to bring them to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So look at verse 21. This is kind of a bookend of this passage. He says this, It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now I want you to see here kind of how this passage has these bookends. At the very beginning of the quote, we have that the Spirit's going to be poured forth on all mankind. And in verse 21, we have this statement that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you understand how radical of a concept that Peter is presenting to these Jews? I mean, this is the Jewish nation, the ones who thought that salvation belonged to them, the ones who a lot of them had these racial prejudices against the Gentiles. You know, if, if you're going to have salvation, you need to be a Jew. We are God's people. And Peter's saying to them, listen, the Messiah has come. He's brought forth the last days. And in the last days, the Spirit of God is for all of mankind. Now, this gets even more heavy. If we go back and look at verses 19 through 20, check this out. He says this, I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon and the blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Now, there's a lot of speculation over this passage. You know, people talk about, oh, well, you know, these these different things that are happening in the sky with the stars or with the moon. You know, it's you got these red moons that are happening. Listen, all that stuff is off base. You go back to the Old Testament, you actually read the exact way that this sort of language is used in the Old Testament. It's very clear. It's about the falling of nations. This phrase is not just used in Joel. It's also used in Isaiah. It's used in other prophetic books. And it's always talking about when a nation is going to fall. So what did I mean when I said that this passage gets more heavy? You think about what the Jews are hearing right now, Peter say. Peter is telling them, what you're seeing right now, this great manifestation of the Holy Spirit being poured poured out on us, is the last days. And we know the last days are here because the Messiah is here. And because He is here, you need to understand that nations, including the Jewish nation, are going to fall. This is why a lot of the Jews just could not accept the gospel. They couldn't accept the sort of Jesus that Peter 
was presenting to them. Because they're saying, no, the Messiah has to be for the Jewish nation because of their prejudices, because of their twisted ideas of what they thought the kingdom of God was supposed to be. What it means for us is that Jesus is not an American. That's hard for me to stomach because I love America. I think the Declaration of Independence is one of the greatest political documents ever to be written. And I'm not saying that America has always been perfect, far from it. But what I am saying is that it's hard for me as a person who is an American, who recognizes the great and amazing benefits that this country has for its citizens and even for people across the world, to think that Jesus is not an American. He's not tied to the American country. Jesus is not saluting our flag. He's not saying the Pledge of Allegiance. It's even hard for me to stomach that. But I have to understand that Jesus is above all that. You see, I've been to multiple other countries across this world. I've been to Jamaica. I've been to Germany. I've been to Austria. I've been to Italy. I've been to the Philippines. I have preached to people about Jesus in all of these countries. And let me tell you what, Jesus is bigger than America. And I'm not saying that we need to be apolitical, that is anti-political, or Christians can't talk about politics, you can't have political opinions. Don't get me wrong, I'm not going to that extreme. What I am saying is I'm trying to caution you, like I have to caution myself, against committing this fallacy, and that is taking Jesus and then mixing him with my political opinions. And I have to be humble enough to recognize that those opinions could be wrong. So here's the scary thought. Here's the dark and murky waters that I wade out on if I don't watch out for this fallacy, is that when I present a gospel to somebody, that I present them a Jesus that's not in accordance with the Scriptures. I present to them my version of Jesus. And the reason why that's scary is that person might walk away rejecting my version of Christianity, thinking they are rejecting the real version of Christianity. Now, I want to read to you a quote by C.S. Lewis, one of the foremost defenders of Christianity in the last century, who later in his life, when he lost his wife, wrote a book called A Grief Observed, where he was basically working through his emotions of losing his wife to kind of illustrate my point here. And here's what he said. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy, that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all your help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and a double bolting on the inside. After that silence, You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows, 
It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Not that I think in in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God at all, but, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Here's a man who is absolutely convinced that God was real and that the gospel was true and spent his life defending it and writing about it. And when he lost his wife, he was going through these emotions and he was just being raw. He's being real about it. And he's saying, look, the the danger for me was not in becoming an atheist again and believing that God doesn't exist. The danger was warping my view of God and having a false view of him and being mad at him or bitter towards him or whatever other emotion because of a false idea I've had of him. And that's my point with the caution that I'm asking you to take, that as you compare your version of Jesus with the Jesus that's presented in the Gospels, what we don't want to do is somehow take our distorted view of Jesus and mix it with the real Jesus and present that to people, because then those people might end up rejecting our version of Jesus and not the real Jesus. And at the end of the day, we're going to be held responsible for that. All right, guys, thanks for joining me on today's podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel and share it with your friends. Always, always, always go back to the Bible. Humble yourselves before it and let it shape you. Don't twist it to shape your views. 